0: The Gospel this morning is the entirety of uh, chapter 9 in John's Gospel. It is uh, long, but it's all of a piece, so stay with me. We remain at the Feast of Booths, um, and uh, here is our Lord as he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but it's like him. He's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. <laughs> so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the gospel.
1: Thank you for reading that whole thing, Bruce, so I didn't have to. Read it much better than I would have anyway. Uh, Good morning. Uh, I went to the art museum this week, because I'm a very cultured person. No, I went because I was kind of trying to work on this sermon, and I was getting bogged down in a bunch of, like, uh, mission trip planning details and other stuff, and so I was feeling kind of clouded and stuck, and a couple other times before when I've been planning things, um or trying to, you know, prepare things, I went to the art museum, and it was helpful. So I was like, I'll try that again, Um, you know, just kind of wander around and think and take a journal in and um, sit in one of those chairs, and, um, you know, everybody goes by, and they're watching the art. Um, And I walked in, and I kind of started to do that, but there was a painting that struck me, and it was a painting of, um, found out after examining a little bit more, it was a painting of the Titanic. Um, it's a huge painting of people desperately clinging to lifeboats that were kind of, some were flipped over a little bit, some were completely flipped over, but they were all grabbing onto lifeboats. And it was by a German painter named Max Beckmann, probably not pronouncing that in a German way, but that's okay. Um, and he, he actually started it um, a few months after the Titanic sank based off of news reports that just really struck him. And I was then struck by another painting that was right next to it. I saw it was also by Max Beckman. I was like, oh, that's cool. Come to find out the whole room is Max Beckman. It's like the big Max Beckman room. There's a big statue of his face in the front that I missed. Um, but this other painting that's also by him is named Christ in the Sinner. And it's the story that we heard uh, preached by uh, Dave Peters and um, our pastor Mike Brandenstein a couple weeks ago about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And he, he painted it in a very, like, abstract way. Uh, you know, the, 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 the figures are obviously all kind of, like, caricatured. He dramatically painted the crowds, all of them with accusatory, angry faces, One art critic actually called it a drama of hands because of how much is communicated in the hands of the people in the crowd. Some of them had spears, some of them had rocks in their hands. One man has this ridiculous nose upturned at the woman with an accusatory finger pointing at her. And the woman is kneeling at Jesus' feet, begging him for mercy with her hands clasped. And Jesus is in this position where he's got his back to the crowd shielding her with one hand pushing the crowd back and one one hand cupped embracing the woman. Woman's like in an obviously vulnerable situation. Her, her, Her chest is actually exposed. That's the only reason I didn't put it on your liturgies this week. But, and I don't think you know Max Beckman drew that to like sexualize her, or even call back to um, her sin, but because he's, he was painting her as this vulnerable woman. And Jesus stands between her and the crowd like a, like a shield. A lot of Beckman's work as I wandered around is focused on desperation. Um, Beckman was actually, a painter um, who went to uh, war in World War I as a medic and he experienced all the horrors of World War I in the trenches and then later when World War, when the Nazis took over in Germany, um, he was declared to be a cultural Bolshevik and the, the picture of that he drew of, uh, of the scene of Jesus and the woman was actually used as proof, Nazis used that as proof um, of uh, his um, cultural kind of communism and um, and so he had to flee. He was he was exiled. He had to flee to to the United States. He became an art professor at Wash U, here in St. Louis for a few years. And through all this, he just ex- he experienced the worst desperation of humanity, humanity in its most desperate form, um, in sin and suffering. And that's reflected in a lot of his art. That's the kind of guiding theme through the um, through the his his painting of the Titanic and of um, Christ and the sinner, and a lot of his other art, desperation. He painted desperation, and he painted it, um, he found a, a beauty in it. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because we're talking about Jesus' encounter with a man who is in one of the most desperate situations you can think of. We're going to see how Jesus treats him, what happens with him, and then I think we're going to see a little bit of ourselves. I hope that we see a little bit of ourselves in the desperation of this man by the end of the sermon today. So we are going through the whole chapter. I won't read the whole thing again, um, but it would be helpful if you followed along in your pew Bibles or if you grab a journaling Bible um, in in the back in the narthex uh, that's yours to keep if you don't have one, um, and we'll walk through it. So starting off, beginning of the chapter, Jesus sees this man who he, he's been known to people around there that he was born blind, they know this, and his disciples asked him, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Which is, you know, don't miss the craziness of that, they're actually asking if he had sinned in the womb, like his prenatal soul had um, done some sort of, committed some sort of sin in the womb that made him come out uh, without the ability to see, or, you know, did his mom sin, was kind of the um, the insinuation there that his mom may have committed a sin while he was um, in the womb. And this question was kind of reflective of a widespread belief of the Jews at the time, and, I mean, honestly, much of the, um, much of the world, that for serious diseases like this, somebody was to blame. You can label that a number of ways. You can call that Karma. Um, I think today a lot of the places, places we see this um, in the church context is called the prosperity gospel, right? You um, follow God, you obey God, you get good stuff. Do good, get good. Follow Jesus, get health, wealth, and prosperity. If you don't believe, you get sin and sickness and poverty. And that's kind of, I mean, they kind of believe this little form of the prosperity gospel, And we'll see that's what the Pharisees believe too, looking a lot like Job's friends, his worthless counselors, as he calls them. And there are are people that will tell you that, that will give you different forms of that. But Jesus is saying here, no, it wasn't some sin that he committed or some sin that his parents committed. I mean, Jesus himself knew that the connection between, you know, our individual sins and, and suffering is not... You know, it's not that tight. Jesus himself would suffer on the cross for other people's sins, not his own. So he says, no, neither of those, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I want to talk about that for a second, because I think there's a lot of people who would say, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm glad you said it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin that he's been born blind all these years, because... But, but you're saying it's because God wanted to do something with him? And that's, that kind of gets into a can of worms that's also really hard. That gets into the question of theodicy, which, is, which just means um, we have this uh, concept that God is good. But then we also know that life is not good many times. Life is hard. There's suffering. So how do we, how do we fit these two things together with both a good God and suffering. There's been a number of number of answers to that question. And let me say first, I don't think there's any answer that any worldview can give you that will leave you saying to the question of, that big question of suffering and theodicy, saying, ah, you know what? That's, that's great. Everything makes sense now. I, I, I can't give you that answer here. I can't give you an answer that'll leave you saying, oh, thanks, Sam, that's awesome. I'm glad you cleared that up for me. So there, are, you know, I mean, we have the answer of atheism that, um, the answer that, that atheism gives is just, well, you just take out the good God part, and you just have the suffering. You just have suffering due to accidents and causes outside of your control. Is that satisfying? Is that really satisfying? And then there are some Christians, I've Good friends, actual, you know, this is not an issue to divide over. These are actual brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm friends with many people who would say this, that there are just straight-up accidents, that God doesn't have a hand in our suffering, either because he could and chooses not to, or because he can't. Is that really satisfying to Anybody? If you're suffering and really grasping with this question of theodicy, what I'm about to say, it's still not going to leave you, you know, with an impression of, Ah, that's great. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. That ties it all together. I don't think there's anything that really will. There's not an answer that really will. So with that happy preface, let me give you two things. Um, I want to say two things about Jesus' statement here. First, this statement that Jesus gives is in particular reference to the man born blind. And we'll talk about what that means for him in a minute. And this may be hard for some of you to hear, or some of you might disagree with me, um, but stick with me to my second point. But I do think that Jesus' statement fits in a long line of biblical witness that nothing, not even the bad stuff, like disasters and war and disease, is outside of God's hand, outside of his care and control even the hard stuff, even the stuff you're born with. And after, you see, Paul in Romans, after talking about suffering and sin and weakness and groaning, Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things, all things, the good, the bad, the hard, the suffering, all things work together for good, the good of those who love God. And we're called to give not only that, but we're also called to give God glory in our suffering, in our diseases. And that can be really hard. But let me also say this. Number two, glorifying God in suffering, in pain, it doesn't always look like happy-go-lucky praise. Sometimes it might. You know, we see the disciples doing that in Acts. Sometimes it might. But sometimes it looks like mourning. I've seen people try to remind those in the depth of suffering, you know, even death of a, a kid or a bad diagnosis, They try to invoke passages like this, and like Romans eight twenty eight to say, don't worry, God's got this. This was meant for good, so glorify Him in it, right? Almost as a dismissal of mourning and grief. And while true, while well-intended, I think a lot of times it's just meant by the person saying it to remove the discomfort of suffering, of mourning. And that can be very unhelpful to people. That can be harmful to people. This story has a quick and ha- happy ending, right? The guy gets his sight back. But when it doesn't look like that's coming, it's okay not to prance around. God doesn't tell sufferers to just kind of suck it up and put a smile on and sing "Kubaya." We have the book of Lamentations, we have the book of Job, we have the book of Ecclesiastes and the Psalms of Lament. We have all this stuff for a reason, because God wants us to direct our mourning and our grief and our suffering to Him. That's also glorifying to God. It's not just glorifying to God when they're just straight praise, right? It's also glorifying to God. We see this throughout the Bible to bring our suffering to Him, even sometimes to ask why. What's going on here, God. He wants you to come to him in the midst of struggling with this question of theodicy. That's glorifying to God. The only other reference we see to this story in the book of John is when Lazarus dies. Some of the people that are mourning for Lazarus are like, Jesus, Jesus healed this blind man. Why didn't he heal Lazarus? Why didn't he help his friend? And Jesus doesn't come and correct their theology. He doesn't come and rebuke them. He doesn't tell them to smile and turn their their hymnal to a happy song. He sits down and he weeps with them. The ultimate answer that Christianity gives to the question of suffering isn't a straight, you know, airtight philosophy. It's a person. It's Jesus who comes in our desperation going on in our story this guy is desperate that's where he is he's desperate he can't see and since he couldn't see he couldn't work he couldn't provide for himself so the only way he could survive was by begging that's what everybody knew him for we don't even have a name for him he's the blind beggar here so last time i preached a few weeks ago it was about jesus as the light of the world and here um this story probably happens weeks or months after Jesus is setting out to show that he's the light of the world. And he comes to this guy who's lived his entire life in darkness, literal darkness, and sets out to give him light. So that's what Jesus means when he says that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus spits on the ground and he rubs it together and he makes mud and he sticks it in his eyes. Jesus likes to spit. Um, he does this two other, at least two other times, uh, in, in Mark when he's, when he's healing people. I never, you know, I don't know. There's some guys that were just laughing at that. I, I, I never feel the need to spit unless I'm like walking around outside with a group of guys. And then there's just, I don't know, there's some, there's some sort of, a psychologist should study that. But Jesus, he spits in the ground. I'm not sure why, there's a few um, possible, you know, there's some theories that I read as to why. I'm not super convinced by a lot of them. Um, maybe the most convincing one is that this is an act of recreation. You know, God spoke the earth and everything into existence. So Jesus spitting was an act of recreation, and God made man out of the dirt. And so he's, you know, that could be. But one thing that I think is pretty clear here is that this miracle required the blind man to acknowledge his desperate need. It required faith and trust in this Jesus who he couldn't even see on the part of the blind man. And he did what Jesus said, and for the first time in his life, he saw. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the videos of people who are colorblind putting on those glasses that can allow them to see color for the first time. They're really awesome. Just look look one up. But imagine that and then amplify it by this guy's situation, who's never seen before, and all of a sudden he gets all the light, all the color, all the beauty for the first time. It'd be really cool. Then we get to the investigation. So the investigation happens in four scenes, and you can kind of imagine it, I don't know if you've ever seen Monty Python, but you can kind of imagine it in like a comedic sequence of Monty Python. Um, It's pretty funny, I heard some of you chuckling when, when Bruce was reading this, um, cause it gets pretty ridiculous. Uh, so first scene, the people, the first people who noticed the change were the people who saw this guy every day, right? His neighbors. They knew him as, this is the blind beggar. I see this guy every day. He's asking for money. Um, but they weren't used to him seeing. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who showed up in a different context than you're used to them being in. Um, and this would kind of be like that. They weren't used to this guy in this context, walking around without assistance, you know, eyes open. And he said, yeah, that's me. I'm, I, I, I was blind, and now I see. So um, he says, yeah, this is what happened. They asked where Jesus was, and he says, I don't know. And they bring the man to the Pharisees, you know, these are the religious elite, so they could look into it. So second scene, we have the Pharisees, and, and this becomes where, the, the part where Jesus' healing on the Sabbath becomes important. Um, I actually did the numbers on this, I think, so these are my numbers, um, but Jesus in the Gospels does seven healings on the Sabbath, which is over a third of all the healings he does like the disciples wake up and stretch in the morning, and they're like, hey, Jesus, what are we doing today? Are we going to go heal some people? Jesus is like, what day is it? It's Thursday. Oh, no, we got to wait a few days. <laughs> wake up on this. Well, why do we always got to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? Well, we wouldn't freak anybody out if we didn't heal people on the Sabbath. All right, so he, lo- he loves healing people on the Sabbath. He does that for a purpose. And I, I don't know, this is just an aside, but, you know, some people present this picture of Jesus as this very non-offensive person. And he's going out of his way to offend the Pharisees here. If you have sensibilities that, are, that rub against the grain of the gospel and of God's love, then yeah, Jesus is going to set out to offend you. Right? That seems very clear here. So they were divided about this. Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Some, some thought he was on God's side and some didn't. So they asked this guy who Jesus was and he says, he's a prophet. And even though we know, we know Jesus is more than that, that's about the highest thing he probably could have said at this point, because all he knew was, you know, this guy, Jesus, came up to him, rubbed some mud in his eyes, and then he did what he said, and he can see. And there's a very small number of prophets in the Old Testament who perform miracles, and so he's saying, yeah, he's, he's on the side of God, duh, he's a prophet, he's working with God. And they don't like that answer, so they go to his parents, so here's the third scene, where um, we're with his parents now, and they ask three questions. Is this your son? Yep. Born blind? Yep. How does he see? They don't answer. They had had heard that Jesus, um, that anyone that was confessing Jesus to be the Christ, was going to be put out of the synagogue. And that meant, for them in that day, that meant religious, um, religious casting out and social casting out. You'd be isolated from your religious community and from your regular worship. So they said, he's old enough to answer, just go ask him. So, scene four, final scene of the investigation. This is the second time the Pharisees are talking to this guy. But this time it kind of takes the form of an investigation. So when they say, give God the glory in verse 24, that's not just a form of greeting. Um, that's actually a means of interrogation when, uh, in the Old Testament. You see, when Joshua, um, back in the book of Joshua, was questioning um, Achan for his sin, he said give God the glory. The kind of insinuation there is, give God the glory or else, right? Tell the truth before God or else. They think he's hiding something that might allow them to um, both put together this guy's seeing and, you know, Jesus is this bad sinner. And so the man says, I don't know. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. Isn't that an awesome response? I think we can use that a lot today. We have this world where people don't like straightforward arguments as much um, as maybe people, people don't respond to those as well as they used to, but um, we live in a world where our, our culture really does prize um, being authentic and, you know, uh, people respecting people's stories and stuff. So, if, I don't know. I, I don't think that's the only way that we can evangelize to people, but I, I do think it's a good way of saying, you know, I see all the stuff you're saying about God, about Jesus, and, you know, I I don't know about all that, I don't want to get into the weeds of all that, but let me tell you about what he's done for me. Just one, one tool for evangelism. So they asked him again, um, maybe trying to see if he could keep his story straight, right? Let's see if he says the same stuff. And I love this part. Um, I've seen fans of, like, TV shows get together and they talk about, like, who their favorite side characters are in the TV shows, uh, in the TV show, and um, I've decided that my favorite side character in the New Testament is this guy because this is where this guy gets kinda sassy and sarcastic, and that's like my main defense mechanism to anybody, or not even defense mechanism, just like knee-jerk reaction. My main knee-jerk reaction to people is kinda just getting sassy, Uh, that's how I communicate. Um, I've surely had to apologize to some of you for that before. I even had an interaction this morning. I think I was talking to Steve, and I said something sassy, and I was like, I hope he didn't think I was like, you know, insulting him. But, you know, he he gets sassy with these guys. He gets sassy with the Pharisees. Um, So he says, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. What, do you want to hear it again? Do you all want to become his disciples too? It's amazing. Um, But having sass, I've also found, as a defense mechanism, does not make people happy in certain circumstances. Um, And in verse 28, we see the Pharisees revile him. And the original Greek word there means um, revile a person to his face, to abuse insultingly. So they were enraged by this, and they, you know, they said, we're disciples of Moses, not this guy Jesus, wherever he's from. And so he continues with his sass, and he says, wow, that's awesome, that's amazing. He did all this stuff, and you don't know where he comes from? So they did to him what his parents were scared of, and they cast him out. He was ostracized, he was cast out. So he's gone in a very short period of time from being this blind beggar to receiving sight. And everybody's really interested in in him. He's got his 15 minutes of fame. And then now he's all of a sudden cast out of his community and his way of regular worship. They told him to get lost. And so what does Jesus do? He comes and finds him. And Jesus reveals himself as the son of man. And Jesus said, you've seen him. You notice that wording there? You've seen him. He has the physical sight. And now, once he sees him, he's seeing him spiritually. And he believes. And Jesus healed his spiritual blindness. And he worships. Let's look at those last three verses here, starting in 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What does that mean? If you've admitted you're blind, if you said, we know we're in darkness, we know we're sinners, we know we're as desperate as blind beggars, if you said that, if you acknowledge that, you came to terms with that. I could, I could help you. I could heal that blindness. But since you say, no, now we're good. We can see. You'll stay in your sin. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, you are blind. Everybody's blind. We all have, even though it was this blind man who was born with this inability to see. Everybody's born with this disease called original sin. And if you don't acknowledge your sin, if you don't acknowledge your desperate state, there won't be any healing. Jesus is saying, you are desperate, you are blind, acknowledge your desperation. So I think the the immediate, the closest application is to those people who don't believe. To people who don't believe, who don't acknowledge their desperate need for Jesus to do that. To let him come, let him heal you. For those who have believed, how do, how do we process this story? If you believed on some level, how do you process this? Well, um, if you met with me this week, uh, you might have noticed I was wearing glasses. I think I've shared this before, but I, I usually do wear contacts. I'm wearing contacts right now. And I'm extremely blind without them, like super nearsighted. Like if I took these out, you would all be, you know, blobs, colorful blobs, but you'd still be blobs. And I'm really bad. I think I've shared this. I'm really bad at taking out my contacts. So when I took out my contacts this week, that was like probably the first time since like maybe May of last year. It's really bad. I've had, yeah, I know, I know. I've, I have some friends that are um, optometrists that tell me that, um, well, they tell me that's really bad, but um, so, I, 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 so I wear them till they kind of hurt my eyes, and then I take them out, and then I you know you can kind of hear my cornea going, and um, I wear glasses um, for a few days, and then I'll um, have these pairs in probably till 2024. Very unhealthy. Don't do that. Uh, but here's my point: I can go days or weeks without remembering I have contacts in. Really, I don't. I don't even think about it. I assume that I, by myself, have awesome eyesight. I forget that I'm actually desperately, nearsightedly blind. Not legally, but. And as Christians, I think that's us sometimes. That's how the New Testament actually goes on to describe Christians who are stuck and stagnant and lukewarm. So Peter, who's with Jesus here and had witnessed Jesus giving sight to the blind multiple times, says in, um, in one of his letters... 2 Peter 1, he says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So the imagery there is you're so far removed. It's so far away from you. And you're, since, since you've been relying on your own eyesight apart from Jesus, you are so far removed from your original cleanse. Like when Jesus first forgave you and you first realized the beauty of the gospel and your need for Jesus and you came to him and he forgave you, you're so far from that you're so far from that event from that from from when that happened that you've lost sight of it you've you've forgotten that you came to jesus as a desperate blind beggar so he's saying the cause of christian stagnation and growth and stuckness and sinful patterns is nearsightedness yeah jesus opened my eyes a long time ago but that's getting of fuzzy now you're so far removed from being the desperate blind beggar at jesus's feet that you assume yeah i'm doing pretty good i can see pretty well revelation 3 we see that again um through john who wrote our passage today jesus writes a letter to the church in laodicea and here's what he says i know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. You're lukewarm because you're saying, I can see, I don't need anything. And Jesus is crying out, remember, on your own, you're a a blind beggar at Jesus' feet. And you're really desperate for me. The only one that can make you see, that's why you're lukewarm. The you that's a desperate blind beggar is so fuzzy to you now, so far away, come back and I'll help you to see again. I have what you need. So that's my first big application to the story. Acknowledge. You are desperate. Everybody in here is desperate. There's a desperation we all share. Acknowledge your desperation. I don't know why the, name, the man's name isn't recorded here, but it sure does make it easy to put in your own name there, doesn't it? To see yourself as this blind beggar. And I don't know what that'll take for you. I don't know what it means practically for you to acknowledge that, um, to, to come to terms with that this week. Maybe it means, you know, intentionally trying to recall and remember who you were before you really understood the gospel. Maybe that means acknowledging the sins or the suffering that you feel helpless and desperate be, be, before today and taking those in prayer to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe it means being like the awkward assistant pastor, wearing glasses and using him to cover up his tears before Beckman's Christ and the sinner in the Art. Museum, because the way Beckman painted the woman caught in adultery she's you know there's the painting and she's at the lowest corner Um, she's the lowest one in the painting she's the most foregrounded person in a way that almost makes it easy to imagine taking her place, switching her out stepping in to the painting hands clasped begging at Jesus' feet Well, Jesus holds back any guilt, any shame, any wrath for your sins, and offers you his hand. But I want to say one more thing. Because that can sound really daunting to us, I think. I think it can sound kind of dark and dreary, can't it? Remember, you're desperate. Acknowledge your desperation. Okay, Sam. But I think there's a bounce there's a, there's a kind of bounciness and levity that this guy has in the story. There's a bounce and levity that comes with acknowledging and putting yourself in the shoes of this blind beggar, isn't there? I mean, this guy, he started out as this desperate blind beggar. That's what everybody knew him as. And then within a few moments, after he was the epitome of desperation, after he was unable to provide for himself, within a few moments, and some, you know, some spit mud from Jesus... And a little washing and a few minutes later he's sassing the pharisees he's walking around with a little bounce in his step those are the guys that have the control over his very place in judaism and he's he's kind of clowning on them and please don't hear me saying that this means you have to be kind of you know just the jokey smiley person all the time or that you have to give off youth pastor vibes i've been told that if you can believe that or that you, you know, or that you never weep or mourn. Sometimes our cause for dreariness can be neurological and affected by other things, and it's not, not strictly spiritual. And I mean, in fact, we started off today talking about, you know, the, the suffering and the question of theodicy, and I told you that mourning is, is good, necessary sometimes. Sometimes it's the time for that, and that's Okay. And now you're telling me to have faith with bounciness and levity, so which is it? But I think we can get a cue from the blind man here, who experienced the depths of suffering. He was desperate, but because his desperation was met, it wasn't an unmet desperation, it was met by Jesus, he was healed, and he walked away with a bounciness step. He faced this anti-gospel culture of the Pharisees that made him a, an outcast, and you know it reads like he had a semi-smile on when all that happened. And so we do have all this weighty stuff in life, and we do have to deal with that. There are seasons of mourning, but those who remember that they're blind beggars, given sight by Jesus, can bear that weight like Buzz Aldrin on the moon. You know, those, those astronaut suits, I looked this up, I didn't know this off the top of my head, but they're like 300 pounds without the person in them, Right? So picture like 500 pounds just bouncing around on the moon. That's kind of like what it means to be a blind beggar that's healed at the feet of Jesus. We can have a sort of joy in our desperation. A levity amidst the hard, hardship, a bounciness because of Jesus. And there's a beauty in that. So if your Christian life right now is marked by dreariness, grumpiness, lack of joy... Being stuck, being stagnant, being lukewarm. Maybe the answer isn't just convince yourself you're you're alright, just keep going, listen to some happy songs, it's fine. Maybe the answer is you're actually in a worse situation than you think you are, a more desperate situation than you think. The founder of the missionary organization Surge, Jack Miller, said, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's beautiful. That kind of desperation that leads you to joy, that's beautiful. One of the... I was reading all the placards of, you know, Max Beckman's stuff in the museum. Um, and one of, it, one of them uh, in one of his other paintings that depicted a very desperate situation said that Beckman found a colorful beauty in these desperate situations. And I think when we see this story of the blind beggar and when we see the story of the woman caught in adultery... We see a sort of beauty that comes from acknowledging ourselves as desperate blind beggars in front of Jesus. So let's do that, church. Let's pray. Lord, um, we desperately need you. But at our most desperate, desperate moments, you do come and find us like you found the blind beggar God. We... We pray that we would not lose sight of the beauty of the gospel that though we deserve every bad thing, though we deserve judgment for our sins, that you sent Jesus to take the punishment and bear the wrath for those sins. Help us to really internalize that, Lord. Help us to really own our desperation, our place as blind beggars healed at Jesus' feet. And help us walk with a bounce in our step because of that. Amen.